G'day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RBC Clinical Podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you for subscribing on your smartphone or generic fruit-based device. We're really grateful for you taking the time to download and listen to this RBC podcast, and we don't ask for much in return, but we're incredibly grateful if you could pop to Apple Podcast or Acast or wherever you, your podcast provider is and leave us a review. Obviously, a five-star review would be great, um, and really appreciate uh, a few moments of your time to uh, to leave us a review. So after uh, a, a few years of, of hunting down, we're today we're, we're lucky enough to, uh, uh, um, to for, for joining joining Brian and myself in the studio uh, to have uh, Ludwig Pellegrand, one of our associate professors here in veterinary anesthesia and I think clinical pharmacology. And clinical pharmacology. Clinical pharmacology. Good, good memory, hey, Dom. Um, but uh, everyone knows as, as Zim. And we, we thought we'd talk to uh, um, uh, Zim today. He's a, a fountain of knowledge about so many things, um, but we thought we were talking about ant- antimetics or anti-nausea uh, agents and, um, and his uh, experience in that, both in uh, um, research and clinical aspects of that. So thank you very much, Zim, for uh, um, uh, being able to finally convince you to coming onto uh, onto the show. So, um, so maybe um, to, to to start, if we can talk about antiemetics. Is, um, is, is maybe the the models of which have, have, or suppose the question is, how do we know, like clinically, um, whether an animal is is nauseous or or feeling sick? So we can obviously say if an animal vomits <coughs> that that's a, a a response but yes you know nausea for you and i is uh, something that we can feel and explain to someone but wh- yeah. where do you start with this in in dogs so it's a very uh, personal subjective experience that is relying on self-reporting uh so there's you can draw a parallel between pain and nausea there is a uh inherent difficulty into um properly assessing it our patients so we anthropomorphize we just relate it to our experience and any signs like such as salivation uh, drooling lip licking lip smacking uh being completely flat uh, could be like interpreted as as nausea we've got the confirmation when actually the animal vomits after that so so we there's a, there's a lot of of guessing uh for our veterinary patient as so far the goal, the, the holy grail would be to have a, a biomarker that tells us, yes, this animal is nauseous, no, this animal is not nauseous, to help us to even train our vets and nurses to recognize and treat nausea, because at the moment it's unrecognizable. But I suppose, as you said, this is a personal thing, and, and before, um, and you mentioned about pain there as mm. well, but you, you said that our understanding is probably similar to, about nausea, is probably mm. similar to our understanding of pain was in animals about 30 yep. years ago. So, so what what can we do to better understand understand that? Um, so first, the, the dissociation between nausea and vomiting is, a, is an important point. Um, it is perfectly conceivable that an animal would feel nauseous without necessarily vomiting and would have its quality of life altered uh, as a result. Um, developing appropriate scales for actually scoring and training uh, veterinary nurses, graduates and vets to recognize and, and observe the effect of a therapy uh, and say if it's better or if it's not better. Uh, would be useful uh, and finally address uh, its importance, very important welfare uh, endpoint to address to, to try to uh, yeah, give the best care we can to our patients. So when you've look, looked into this yeah. and say, so where did you, where, where do you start? Like where do you start with a problem like this? Uh, yeah, in terms of um, 
in terms of uh, trying to, 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 to look at uh, the dissociation between the two. Um, you could have, uh, you, that's the experimental approach we, we, we looked at, um, and, and basically it's coming from the uh, human drugs that uh, you know, have been very promising but had uh, clinical failure because of emetic liability. Uh, and one of them is Rolipram, it's an antidepressant in the 80s that was very promising but failed in clinics because people were just too nauseous to take it. Um, and, and the dogs were used as kind of sometimes preclinical model to assess nausea, uh, but uh, the rest of the time it was just done on rodents and rodents behave very differently in regards to nausea. So uh, there is a uh, a breadth of knowledge into uh, using dogs and rats in this uh, kind of emetic liability or, or nausea liability. So building on that, uh, we developed with a drug company, Pfizer at the time, uh, a project to try to um, evaluate whether the common antiemetics we've got are actually also good anti-nausea drugs. Um, and the idea was to develop uh, an acceptable, ethically acceptable, uh, reproducible and safe for the animals model where you could just induce enough nausea without inducing too much vomiting so you could uh, actually compare the classic drugs that we use in clinics every day to see if they also had a good anti-nausea effect. Because I suppose just probably taking a, a step back, my, my understanding of say, uh, say one of the drugs that are commonly used, like meropidin, it was designed yes. as a um, like a motion sickness model. Yep. Was that was that right? So uh, yeah, it was um, it was tested into yeah, motion sickness, so really literally taking dogs in the van and driving them around. But also it was tested versus cisplatin, which is a very potent uh, emetogenic drug. Okay. Uh, so the two, uh, that's what the two, the two clinical studies um, were carried out in these models to, to get the, the claim for moropitant uh, as an antiemetic. Okay, so that, so that are, cause, uh, so it's not only motion sickness, there's also like another yeah. model of, of reproducing. So yeah. cisplatin, does that induce nausea without vomiting? Is oh, that? it's very, very induced emetic emesis at uh, very, uh, very obvious and very, uh, very severe. But at a, that's when it was used as a very high dose, like the clinical dose, which uh, is 70 gram per square meter, is uh, is a uh, very very emetic emetogenic um, but you can actually fine-tune the model so that uh, you come up with 20% of the dose and you just induce uh, very marked nausea but actually very few emetic events and in this case when you when you go for this model then you can start like comparing the anti-nausea effect of different drugs and the good thing is that you can re you can readminister it to dogs because they tolerate relatively well because you're using a fraction of the clinical dose. And can I ask, I suppose, like similar to, to pain, I imagine that as, as pain is a very personal experience, yeah. is, is nausea a personal experience as well? As in, even with that model, would you, would you expect that, say, if you give uh, cisplatin at, at, at nausea, at a, the dose you think yeah. you'll get nausea, is it, is it reproducible? As you, in, it, you know, rather than... Um, you like still pain being subjective. Would every animal get Yeah, nauseous? you still have anti, like some some degree of inter-animal variability. Yeah. Um, but we had a very 
very proficient trained observer that uh, has been working with these dogs and, and compared the high dose, uh, the, the, the effect of the high dose cisplatin with the low dose cisplatin and various. You know, so you, you rely on human perception, uh, you rely on the proxy, which could be the owner, but it could be your observer in this uh, specific experiment. Um, and if the observer is blinded, then you've got a good chance of uh, yeah getting the right signal. But that also doesn't distract us from finding an objective marker, something that would go up in blood or in another biological fluid when the animal is feeling nausea and that would go down when the nausea subsides or when you've got a positive effect of an anti-nausea drug. So it's a bit like the gold standard of measuring nausea and pain. So far in pain, nobody has come up with a good biomarker. Uh, many people have tried but we still rely on observation and then some other device like accelerometry and all this other technologies but we still don't have that we haven't cracked that nut yet see so, so did we, we find anything or did sorry did you find anything with 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 nausea were there any markers that uh, yeah, seem promising there there are a few markers that uh, were promising when you explore the the literature in in rodent in people and actually it's not that much uh, published, so we were in a field where you know there was lots of data that could be gathered. But the two main interesting markers were that hormones, that's vasopressin, arginine vasopressin, and oxytocin is another one. Uh, there were some other ones that uh, could have been validated, and we tested we tested some of them. But uh, in our preclinical evaluation, we retained vasopressin. Cortisol is another one but a bit too unspecific, uh, just varies too much with other conditions. Um, but we found that vasopressin, actually, if you look at the time course of nausea and vasopressin, they follow each other very well. And then when nausea subsides, on based on clinical observation, the vasopressin goes down. Or when you've got, we had one drug that worked really, really well against nausea, and it abolished both the clinical response but also the biomarker response so in, in a specific model but that was that was very interesting and after the idea is to can we take this biomarker in a clinical environment and, and actually use that to verify whether the dog was nauseous or not and assist our subjective evaluation of nausea validate the subjective evaluation and see so the, the the what what were the drugs that you <coughs> you looked at? Yeah, so we used the 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 three classic ones. Two of them are are veterinary license. Uh, Moropitant um, is the NK1 antagonist. Then metoclopramide has been used for a, a very long time in uh, in dogs through uh, like works through the mechanism. And the last one we wanted to compare was odoncetron, which is um, um, anti. Um, uh, HT3, a uh, drug that is very potent in the field of uh, MSIS related to chemotherapy uh, drugs. So it's really good for cancer patients. Uh, this one is not licensed for veterinary medicine. So it's something that is, um, I'm, I'm sure many people have heard of Odanstron or, or use it. So it's something that was originally designed for anti-nausea in, in chemotherapy in people, wasn't yeah. it? And, 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 and there's, <coughs> I suppose a lot of subjective experiences it seems to work but then again as you probably said i know uh, um, and we're probably guilty of it uh, as well a number of people use all of those drugs and i suppose it'd probably be good to know that you know is is one probably a, a better one to use or in a similar way to uh giving analgesia you know is it better to start with one and then mm. 
have second line or third line. In people, there is definitely an escalation and they they are multimodal. Um, uh, Depending on which chemotherapy protocol and also depending on your demographics and your likelihood of being subject to nausea. So if you're a female smoker, and uh, you had previous experience that that's that makes you more likely so they they might start with just one single drug uh, blanket approach or actually already escalate you with a combination of different drugs that have anti-nausea effect uh, knowing that for example good old dexamethasone is one of these anti-nausea drugs in uh, in a chemotherapy protocol but they might start you with just uh, NK1 antagonist or they might also add one or two other drugs uh, depending on your response so uh, with that regard they are quite multimodal actually uh, and whether we should actually use a combination of different drugs knowing that some have a peripheral effect some have a mixed effect or a central effect uh, maybe sometime we should yeah develop uh, the same kind of escalation approach and have a drug that act at different uh, sites so, you, so, you ask, so what, what did you what did you find in, in comparing those uh, okay those so drugs? what we found was and, and that was really a, a light bulb moment where you know we had absolutely no idea when we broke the code and looked at the looked at uh, you know we we knew that drug a b and c and d had different very different effects on 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 vomiting that was clear one was uh much better like i think two two were really good at like really suppressing significantly uh, vomiting but only one was actually very effective against nausea so there was one drug that you know dropped vomiting but kept the animal nauseous and there were two other treatments that did absolutely nothing so probably the placebo was in this one and breaking the code we realized that actually the drug that not only suppressed vomiting but completely inhibited nausea was olonsetron and that was that was quite amazing uh, based on that and and morpitant only you know did a little dent on the the nausea profile uh but the animal was still nauseous with that so anyway it's very model specific it's probably because we use cisplatin <coughs> but that was for the first time we managed to to prove a dissociation so a drug that would work on both whereas the two other drugs were just working on vomiting at best so that was that was very interesting. interesting. And and you, and you you had a, a placebo in, yeah. in that group as, yeah. as well. Yeah, and the placebo just like gave the maximal response, and so did uh, uh, the metoclopramide did uh, in this model uh, nearly nothing compared to uh, like you couldn't distinguish them really uh, between saline placebo and uh, and metoclopramide. So yeah, how how do we take that information, Zim, and, and put that into a into a clinical context? Yeah. So how do you do that? Um, first, it's it's a very promising uh, result for Doncetron, uh, and I think that empowers clinician to, if your first line therapy, i.e., moropitant or metoclopramide fails, to reach the other drug. Uh, so that that's the first thing, and and in the context of either perioperative. Uh, nausea and vomiting we we see that after pre-medication or when an animal recovers and a bit groggy uh, then we are a bit more aware of that some of the drugs like more uh, work and also in uh, in cancer chemotherapy or oncologists were very pleased with this result because although it's not licensed but that that study was you know 
gold standard randomized clinical trial blinded uh, and uh, it gives very good evidence to to be empowered to use that although it's not licensed uh, and if i was a drug company i would probably start looking into uh, looking at you know registration studies for uh, for odoncetron and i suppose that like particularly maybe with the um, oncologists that are out there or people thinking about treating patients with um with those those drugs yeah. that if you have some confidence to say to clients well we know that x drug might mm -hmm. you know might counter that that effect because because definitely although it's it might be different for different people and and people mm -hmm. have personal experiences of, of chemotherapy normally to do with like family members or personally yeah. But nausea is one of the things that yeah. people get very concerned about, as well as as well as hair loss. So if you can, it has become number one uh, fear. Like before, uh, if you look at the trend in time now, the last four studies that look at the side effect fear number one is is nausea, before emesis, before loss of hair, before everything. This is w the reason why people would stop treatment. They would rather not be nauseous then have to you know get gain survival uh but be nauseous so if people are anthropomorphizing on their pets then yeah. maybe they they won't want that for them but if we could say well actually yeah we think we can manage this or, yeah. or we have some evidence to manage that then, then yeah no that would uh, that would uh, probably allow us to treat for 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 longer in better conditions um and, and what did you you find with the actual um your way of monitoring or assessing nausea was was that quite consistent and do you think that can be applied in a in a clinical setting as yeah. as well yeah no i think there there is a need for training um and uh kind of anchoring or standardizing people's judgment um and just raising awareness uh that nausea does exist in the independently from vomiting so if we can drill that into the kind of um, CPDs or new graduate education might be good it's a new generation that's like pain became treatable yeah we can give up here it's great then these guys would come and say no we can actually address this nausea we can do something to um, to to improve the quality of life of our patients uh, so training is important awareness and and uh, and, and accumulating good uh, scientific evidence that that demonstrate that uh, these drugs are efficacious. So, wh where do you want to uh, take this work, Sim? So, what would be the, the <laughs> next things that you want to? Well, we've do? done we've done a few things. We uh, with the oncology department, we also looked at other causes of nausea in these patients, and uh, anticipatory nausea is another thing we looked at uh, with uh, with uh, one of the oncology nurses uh, as uh, as a human patient going to repeated. Uh, um, sessions of chemotherapy you just get this anticipation any contra pavlovian uh feeling sick uh before even you had a catheter placed and you receive the drug so we looked at that too uh to try to tease out the component of anticipation because like the last time you came to the clinics you were sick so we, we looked at that and then uh we are also looking at uh other prospective clinical trials in the field of you know pancreatitis and see if we could improve uh this patient with endocetrum or opitant vestibular uh syndromes as well we've got an open clinical trial uh looking at whether we can improve the nausea score and, and actually get this animal to eat earlier despite the 
uh, vestibular disturbances. So it applies to a lot of different ar arenas, including one that's close to my heart, also uh, intra and postoperative um, medicine. Um, where actually we can, we can not only uh, yeah reduce the vomiting at the time of pre-med, but also these drugs uh, like moropitant, for example, have a, a positive effect to reduce the amount of volatile anesthetic agent you need intraoperatively. Something that was completely unknown, unexpected, but we've got some new evidence saying that you know it does help to reduce your ISO or your SIVO. How does that work? Uh, we don't know. Absolutely no. Well, it's it's related to the neurokinin one inhibition bio. So far, we we just have been able to observe again in this experimental model that um, it is uh, it is reducing by a fair amount the number of uh, the, the, the 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 vaporizer setting you need to to do a standardized pay, for example. So in my practice, uh, in a way, if I can if I can kill two birds with the same stone, I say, well, this dog is 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 nauseous, or this dog, you know complication number one of the surgery is uh, post-operative pneumonia due to regurgitation, then I would say, well, I, I'm going to give the moropitan, for example, for helping intraoperative management and to prevent the complication. So it, it, I, I use it on a, on, on a regular basis, no moropitan in the preoperative period. Odonsetron doesn't do the same thing, but uh, it was a, an interesting finding with moropitan. Um, can I ask you with your your more your pharmacology sort of hat on and the and the the, the drugs that you used and the dosages that you used? How mm. did you decide upon sort of the dose strength and frequency? Was that quite an easy thing to do? Because uh, I suppose mm. with um, an understanding of metoclopramide, maybe yeah. that uh, that clinically a continuous rate infusion might be better than intermediate yeah. boluses so so how did you come up with yeah so we <coughs> we also the, measured the kinetics of this uh drugs like took blood sample and uh, and uh looked at the kind of half-life and duration of actions um expected from the plasma level but if i had more time then i would have compared different doses uh, definitely there are three licensed doses for moropitant one for at a much higher dose for uh, vestibular motion. Uh, paradoxically, if you keep increasing your dose of uh, moropitan, the animals start vomiting. Uh, and we don't know the mechanism, but um, yeah, at 16 milligram per kilo, there is emesis described, whereas it wasn't described at eight. And then the, the dose for um, kind of uh, chemotherapy-induced uh, vomiting and nausea is, is more one to two milligram per kilo. So, um, there, there could be a dose to effect relationship, but we didn't have enough time to explore uh, different doses of uh, odonsetron, for example. Um, definitely in cats, people have used, um, there, is, there are some other studies looking at uh, dolacetron. Um, and, and what uh, in the studies I've reviewed at, at the dose they've employed, it's not sufficient to Im inhibit emesis due to xylosine, but at higher doses, then that, that could become a, a viable option for clinical development. So yeah, the, the dose uh, really makes a big difference. Um, and unfortunately, sometimes you don't have the luxury of organizing studies where you can also test different doses. Uh, you need a strong backup from uh, funding uh, you know, either a drug company or a, a good grant, but uh, yeah, there could be. The, the, the also the the way you deliver the drug uh, 
in them, uh, whether it's a, a bolus or a continuous infusion could uh, could also uh, make a big difference. Uh, but you need to know you need to know more about the pharmacokinetics and design experiments where you can test either a bolus or a continuous infusion. So it, it takes a long time, and it's very hard to carry that in a more academic environment. Uh, so we need to partner with drug companies, I think. And when you <coughs> when you looked at this, um, did you were, were you giving intravenous drugs or were you, were yeah, you giving was, oral drugs? It was intravenous for for all because uh, the problem with giving oral drugs, uh, the the effect would be self limiting by the first vomiting that you you have. So you had to go for um, for for intravenous, uh, and I think they were infused over a uh, period of fifteen minutes, like short infusion. Um, but uh, yeah, that's one of the one of the problem of also developing MSIS model with something that's given orally, like IPCAC, or uh, once the vomiting has occurred, there's, uh, the vomiting stops. So we needed to have a, a model where you could have uh, know there that lasts for a bit longer, like four or five hours. So you you got time to give your drug and look at the onset of relief and the offset of the relief. And I know it might be ongoing, but you said that one of the colleagues is, is having a look at um, anticipatory yeah. uh, nausea. Yeah. Is, is, is that something that, that might exist in, in our patient population or, or still sort of unsure about? Oh, we, just, we, uh, like we, we looked at the statistics and uh, it's, it was only a small sample, so we're not able to demonstrate uh, a significant effect of the number of visits. So, well, the hypothesis is that the, the 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 more frequently you you come to the clinics, the the, the worse the dog would fear, or whether the dog had a, a really bad experience in terms of vomiting and side effects, the next visit would subsequently trigger more anticipatory nausea and vomiting. So we we haven't got quite a number to demonstrate that, but occasionally you you get the anecdotal dog that that gets worse that was the, the idea but uh, we we keep working on that um to increase the number and and get more information on that but at the moment it's unclear and and are any uh, companies you know developing more anti-emetics or anti-nausea drugs and and do you, is some of that going to filter down to dogs and cats or do you think that that the, the three we have at the moment are probably going to hang around again for another like 20 years um i think uh in terms of new classes we haven't found anything that was revolutionary so i would i would concentrate on uh, trying to gain more evidence and license the the Cetron, one of the Cetron ones um some of the drugs that could be interesting uh like mirtazapine in cats uh, also could have a mild anti-nausea appetite stimulant effect. Um, currently not licensed, but uh, used again of license anecdotally. And I, I think uh, we need to get enough, get a get a backup, get enough evidence to 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 be able to license that and to use it more safely. You know. In animals, so there, there are some other drugs that were not initially designed as antiemetic, but that could also have uh, uh, appetite stimulant, preventing of weight loss, stroke, um, uh, anti nausea effect. And um, do you think uh, we need to sort of talk about anything else in relation to uh, antiemetics and the use of dogs and cats? In? Uh, no, I think it's uh, it's. Uh, 
to, to have that presented at the national audience um, is very interesting. Like we, we did a dual act with Jill Madison on uh, nausea and vomiting a couple of years ago at BSAV and and that was like everybody has their own experience, their own um, uh, their own way they treat the patients or their own uh, personal experience with a family member or even a per so it, it definitely uh, releases lots of passionate talks uh, and raised interest of, of, of people um, and, and I think it's still under recognized so we need to make more noise about it uh and and uh yeah yeah it's uh, definitely a target that still needs to be uh achieved <coughs> sorry excuse me i know that uh, well i'd imagine that uh like clinically speaking people are always like concerned about using anti-nausea drugs and, and masking any sort yep. of ongoing effects in in those patients but maybe we need to take a step back and think well whether <coughs> whether actually you know, what is the significance of mm. that in ones that are that are centrally acting and is that actually going to change um what mm. we do clinically or not like for, I, very different for say using medical open wide compared to using on dentron or, or meropotent for in that manner so there might be some people that that clinically think i don't want to give anything because yeah. i want to see what happens i'd yeah i'd imagine but whether that's right or so wrong. it requires a reevaluation of therapy and it's 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 always going to be a symptomatic treatment and the the, the initial cause should be addressed first uh but you know that comes back to the argument of you know i don't give analogies yet because i don't want uh you know the animal to use his leg and break his implant um, it, it, uh, there's the, the, the flip side of the argument where actually denying the use of uh, uh, for a full clinical reason is, is not not a really great thing to do. So yeah, no, I, I see I see the point of um, masking symptoms, but uh, when the cause has been clearly identified and there's a therapeutic option to relieve this animal and there is a nausea that has been recognized and there is no no excuse not to give it well i think that's a, a fair point to uh, to leave it there zim and uh, and we'll wrap it up there so thank you very much for your your time today um and thank you for listening so don't forget to hit that subscribe button on your generic fruit-based device and that way you don't even have to worry about missing a podcast so if you can leave us a five-star review uh that would be great don't forget to tell your friends vet friends or any other friends we're, we're, we don't we don't care um we'll place some show dates on the obviously pages so just type in obviously clinical podcast into your search engine of choice and it should be top of the tree so if you have any comments or suggestions for this podcast please get in touch you can either email dbarfield at obviously.ac.uk or tweet at don barfield until next time bye bye